This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering, in for Meghna Chakrabarty. We've all noticed more and more places asking us to leave a tip, from bars and coffee shops to takeout places, rideshare apps, drive throughs There's this bakery that I just love. I like to order from them and go pick up their, their food, their cookies. They've enlisted the help of a third party, Grubhub. You have to go through the Grubhub app, and they ask for a tip. Now, I'm the person who's driving to the bakery to pick up the, the food. So who am I tipping? That's On Point listener John Urban in Los Angeles. Here's Paula Durant, also in California. I recently made a reservation for an airport shuttle. Before I could finalize the reservation and pay, it required a tip. It, there was no choice in the matter. If you didn't fill in tip, you couldn't make your reservation and pay for it. And I found that extraordinarily problematic. I'm a good tipper, but I want the option of tipping for the service I'm offered, not in advance of the service I'm offered. Now, servers have noticed the confusion, too. Robert Sakowitz is in Minneapolis. Well, I work at a place that does a service charge that tells people not to tip. And when I started working at this place, I was all down for it, you know, a consistent paycheck. But then as time went on, you realize there's no incentive to work harder. Hours get cut. And Liam Odian is a career bartender and bar manager. Here's his suggestion. If everyone tipped an extra dollar every time they went out or bumped their tip from 20 to 21% or 18 to 19% or what have you, it would be life-changing money for almost any service uh, employee. So how do we all navigate this new world of tipping and what's behind this seemingly massive shift in tipping culture? Joining us now to help us understand that is Sean Jung. He's an assistant professor at Boston University's School of Hospitality Administration. Sean, welcome to On Point. Hello, Tiziana. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. I guess I should ask, start by asking, it is a new world, right? We don't just feel this. Something has changed, Sean. It absolutely has. Um, the uh, tipping world has been changing over uh, during the pandemic and also after the pandemic as well. And the pandemic, in your mind, is the starting point when things began to shift? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say the reason why all of this has changed uh, more drastically is because of the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, 
uh, a lot of people in the service industry um, found out that uh, some didn't want to continue working in the industry, as well as they also found new opportunities. And that actually led to the great, great resignation, uh, which was after the pandemic, that leaded to basically having less employees in the restaurant industry. And for that reason, now restaurant owners are fighting to find good quality talent. And in order for the best way to actually bring in talent is to increase wage. Um, and because of that, that's why we are now seeing these two, these new type of technologies that can actually increase those wages for, uh, for basically for employees at this stage of the uh, in the restaurant um, industry right now. So, Sean, there's a lot in what you just said, and I kind of want to break it apart and slow it down. So let's Absolutely. go. Let's go back to COVID because I have to admit, what I thought you were going to say about sort of it starting with COVID was that moment of kind of solidarity where everybody mm-hmm. was picking up their food. Nobody could work in restaurants ev- anymore. We were celebrating our frontline workers who either didn't get sent home or couldn't work from home. And it did feel like there was a, a, I don't know, a stretch there, if that's the right word, Sean, where people were showing their gratitude with their money and trying to keep workers whole, and especially our food industry, our restaurant industry open. I was assuming you were going to say that had something to do Mm -hmm. with this early change in tipping. Am I wrong? Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, That would be basically on the... Uh, consumer side, where the consumers, uh, basically, that is true that they basically felt that uh, they wanted to support uh, their restaurants. And for that reason, even for things that we would never actually imagine to pay as tips, people would be still willing to pay tips for that. And for that reason, most of all of our um, orders that we had were online. And for that reason, again, uh, consumers were finding ways, were being a little bit more acceptable of paying tips uh, to even some of the restaurant industries that we would be, never be thinking of paying before. Um, on the supply side, on the other hand, as mentioned before, um, it's uh, the there is a great sor- shortage uh, as well as during the pandemic. Well, a lot of people were uh, laid off or were sent uh, home uh, with no paycheck as well. And that also has also affected some portion of that uh, part of what we're seeing right now. So uh, it's helpful to have you break out, Sean, that consumer side versus the supply side as we saw this massive shift uh, that COVID started. I think it begs the question, well, then why doesn't mm-hmm. the employer pay the person more Why uh, versus asking the consumer to pay more in the form of a tip. And, and now, of course, I'm cheating. I know you have an answer to that, but I want you to answer that, which is why I'm yes. teeing it up for you. No, yes. So uh, the reason why uh, basically uh, this is all happening, where um, where uh, the restaurant is trying to basically uh, use tipping as a source to sort of um, – pay for the employee's uh, wage is basically because uh, if you put it on price, then that basically means you are the only restaurant that has increased the prices while other people are using the strategy of trying to ask for more tips. Now, if that actually happens, then you get less demand. And for that reason, uh, if you get less demand, of course, you would be the only restaurant that would be suffering uh, more than other restaurants relatively. And um, Of course, if we're thinking that if this strategy is to survive, 
then of course it would be better to use the same strategy that everybody is doing, using right now, which is sort of a nuisance for basically everyone at this point. So we're speaking with uh, Sean Jung, who's on the faculty at Boston University School of Hospitality Administration, where we're exploring what has felt like a really new world of accelerated pressure to tip, changes in who we tip, changes in how much we tip, where we're asked to tip over the last few years. Kind of underlying what you're talking about there, Sean, is a suggestion that there's a lot of price sensitivity here, that you can't afford to have it look up front like it's going to cost a consumer a lot more to eat at your restaurant. Somewhere in there has to factor in this question of inflation. I mean, we uh, I live in the Boston area. I know a lot of our chefs and our restaurants talk constantly about how much more expensive it has become to put the same meal on the table for a customer as it was, you know, two years ago. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, the... Uh... The war in Ukraine also had a very big impact in terms of the increase of food costs, especially also on the uh, the side of the restaurants. And if you think about it, restaurants on a good day earns around an average of 5% margin. And if you think of the how much the prices uh, have increased in, only in terms of the ingredient costs, uh, it's very um, hard for a restaurant owner to not increase the price uh, while also having to deal with basically wanting to give more wage to their employees where they are also having a hard time due to this high inflation that we are experiencing right now. Okay, so there's this other thing. And if I'm a listener right now, I'm thinking, why haven't you talked about the screen? If you're going to talk about tipping, what I want you to do <laughs> is talk about the screen. So it's time yes. to talk about the screen, Sean. Where did it just magically appear? Where have these screens come from where, you know, you're using your Apple Pay or your credit card mm-hmm. and all of a sudden every screen everywhere is offering one the chance to tip? Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the biggest complaints that I think that everybody has uh, as of today is that they are seeing places where they haven't tipped before, uh, before the pandemic, as comparing to now that we're basically tipping for almost um, everything that we all, we uh, purchased it today. And uh, the biggest uh, difference that we can see is basically that now we have that tipping within our system of our payment. So before, if you went to a coffee shop, you would basically see a tipping jar, which basically had nothing to do within the process of what you are paying. But nowadays, if you go to, let's say, a coffee shop, uh, the thing is you are basically, uh, after you pay for uh, what you have purchased, they they, uh, basically turn over that uh, the POS and then ask for that tip. So now it's, you know, that's basically saying that your, uh, the tipping process is now with inside the, uh, the payment process. And when that actually happens, now people are more aware of that they have to pay tip or sometimes uh, they, they're not quite sure if they have to pay tip since now it's basically right in front of your face. So what I want to uh, understand yes. about that, Sean, is was mm-hmm. that, is that like one of those things that simply technologically became possible and was coincidental mm-hmm. with the other factors you're talking about? Or did tech mm-hmm. companies start to offer it because it, they noticed the other factors you're talking about? I would say that the tech company uh, has found a way to basically... Uh, 
um, by uh, whether it was by accident or not, they have found a way uh, and realized that now uh, it is a way to actually increase wage. So technically speaking, we really don't know if it was uh, designed by on purpose, but it is a fact that they also now currently very well know that this system works when when it uh, when it comes to paying tips. Okay, so here's what I think I've got from you so far, Sean. Um, mm-hmm. This we are in a new world. That is, in fact, the case. It was launched at the time of COVID, and since mm-hmm. then, pressures on inflation, the changes in our labor force, uh, and the fact that restaurants can't afford to pass some of this on, or at least they would say that due to prices, have led to asking the consumer to do it instead of the supplier. Is that about the size of it? Absolutely. All right. So, Sean, I'm going to have you hold on for just a minute there. We're going to take a quick break. We are talking about navigating this new world of tipping. And when we come back, we'll talk about how this came to be a common practice in the United States in the first place. A little bit of context might be helpful. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today we're talking about navigating the new world of tipping. And thinking about the new world also got us wondering about the old world of tipping and how the practice became so ingrained. So for some insight into that, we turned to Sylvia Allegretto. She is a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And she told us that tipping first appeared in the United States around the 1800s. So you had some more some of the wealthier uh, Americans who were traveling abroad. And the interesting thing is that tipping was really big in Europe. And that's not the case today. So it kind of been, tipping has been kind of flipped on its head. It wasn't the case in the United States at the time. It was the case in Europe. Tipping took off here after the Civil War. Allegretto says, as businesses started hiring formerly enslaved people, businesses like the Pullman Company, which employed thousands of black porters to work in its railroad cars. The porters sometimes worked as many as 20 hours a day for very little money. They didn't want to pay them a regular wage, and they thought it was okay just to leave it up to the mostly white, wealthy customers to pay them tips and that they could live on those tips Economist Sylvia Allegretto says that a passionate debate about tipping developed in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as the United States rapidly industrialized. Some wanted to crack down on tipping because they saw it as an exploitation of labor. 
One of the most outspoken during the progressive era was a man called William Scott. He wrote this great book called The Itching Palm, a study of habit of tipping in the United States. In 1916, Scott wrote, quote, The relation of a man giving a tip and a man accepting it is as undemocratic as the relation of master and slave, end quote. Another big name from history who criticized tipping, Eleanor Roosevelt. In 1938, she said it was the result of the failure to provide a living wage. Allegretto says as long as there's been tipping, there's been a debate about it. And she sees the current discussion in the U.S. as another iteration of that debate. Now, we've been talking with Sean Jung, assistant professor at Boston University School of Hospitality and Administration. We're going to bring another guest to join us now. Jeremy Price is the co-owner and president of Sea Creatures Restaurants. That operates 10 businesses in Seattle. Those include fine dining restaurants like the Walrus and the Carpenter and a handful of coffee and donut shops called General Porpoise. Jeremy, welcome to you, too. Hello, Tiziana. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So Sean and I spent some time earlier in the conversation, Jeremy, setting up the fact that we are in a bold new world, sort of coming out of COVID and due to inflation, changes in technology, et cetera. When, as a restaurant owner, did it feel like there was a huge change to you? Yeah, yeah I think the... Um the, the labor constraints coming out of the pandemic. And, you know, I think a lot of restaurants were in the same position that we were in here in Seattle, where, you know, we um, went through several lockdowns, there was a number of layoffs. And then once we were able to operate again normally, there was this massive kind of rehiring of, of staff to, to get back into business and, and into operation. And I think the labor market became really, really competitive. So, um, you know, what Mr. Young was saying, um, I think is, is right on about um, the, the tipping and kind of all these new places having everything to do with the, the labor market being so, so competitive, finding workers being very hard. So, Sean, looking back at the history that we just heard, I'm thinking about something you said earlier about, for example, the change from the chip do- tip jar to the screen. This change in uh, sort of tipping has really led to a pretty massive cultural set of shifts and anxiety. Would you agree? Uh, yes, that would be absolutely true. I mean, a lot of people are starting to be uh, feel a lot confused, um, as mentioned before, because you're basically asked for tip for even situations that you haven't or weren't expecting uh, before uh, the pandemic. So I want to pick up on that. Uh, We called Mike Lynn, who is a professor of consumer behavior and marketing at the Cornell University of Hotel Administration. He says that in theory, we behave differently. We'll use this tip jar example with jars as opposed to automatic tip screens. And he says that there's arguably more social pressure when a screen prompts the tip. Failure to tip with the tip jar is passive. It's a sin of omission. Failure to tip with the screen is active. And we tend to think of sins of omission as less problematic than sins of commission. But perhaps even more importantly than that, tip jars contain information about what other customers have done. And it's fairly easy to see whether people ahead of you are putting money in a tip jar. It's not as easy to see what people are selecting. And I think that people's default is, well, I'm assuming since they're asking, most people must be giving. 
So Jeremy Price, there's two things right there. There's the sort of the the social and sociological dynamics of what a tip screen does versus a jar. But there's also the fact that people are beginning to respond to social pressure. And as a restaurant owner, I think I'm more intrigued in this moment at the social pressure thing and how you've seen customer behavior change. Kind of feels like we went a really long time after that history of, let's say, 1938, where it wasn't particularly controversial, at least in the restaurant world and food world, to tip. Yeah, that, that's right. I think it's been the the norm um, for you know as long as long as I've been doing this, and a lot longer, in fact. So something changed for you in 2015. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. We um, we made a switch from uh, accepting tips, um, like everyone is used to, to a 20% service charge. Um, and uh, a lot of reasons for that, but but the kind of the instigating sort of thing for us was um, uh, sort of legal advice that the way we were tip pooling and tip sharing um, might be problematic with some uh, new interpretations of the Fair uh, Labor Standards Act. Um, and so we went through kind of a whole process with our team and, and kind of looked at comprehensive pricing, looked at tipping, looked at service charges, and ultimately decided to make that move from tipping to service charges. And when you had a service charge, uh, did you find that customers reacted differently to that than they had to when it was just their choice to tip or not? You know, not not especially. I, I think, you know, probably 80, 90 percent of our customers, um, you know, ha- were, were ambivalent about it. If they had an opinion one way or the other, they, they weren't sharing it. They seemed fine. We had maybe another 15 percent of folks, 10, 15 percent of folks that were really excited about it. You know, comments like it's great not to do math at the end of my meal. Um, you know, and then there was a small kind of vocal minority that that absolutely felt that we were taking away their agency, their, you know, their power to choose, um, you know, how much much to leave. Um, in those cases, we would remove the service charge. But, you know, by and large, you know, most people didn't seem to feel strongly about the change one way or the other. So that's on the consumer side. I also want to bring in the server side. When we reached out for voicemails, we got one from Sasha, who's a server in Miami. Here they are. The biggest problem uh, with tipping in Miami is the uh, gratuity is included in most checks. The, this uh, whole idea of including tip, uh, the only beneficiary of this is the owner of the restaurant because they get to keep uh, like good 4 or 5% out of the 20 uh, added to each check. And uh, in all reality, the, the server will only make uh, another 11, maybe 12%. So they've got a strong assertion there, Jeremy Price. I want to talk to you and Sean about this. First, your reaction as somebody who runs both coffee and donut shops and fine dining restaurants, Jeremy. Yeah, I, I think I think that um, that uh, person was was right on. You do you do um, see with service charges um, the house, you know, the restaurant retaining some of it to pay the tax on the service charge. So, um, you know, service charges are treated like revenue and taxed accordingly, um, whereas a tip just kind of passes through the house through the restaurant right onto the employee's check, and the house does not pay tax on it the same way. So, uh, no question, right on. And this was one of the reasons while coming out of the pandemic, we, we moved away from that service charge just to, you know, again, uh, get as much money to our employees' paychecks as possible. So Sean Jung of Boston University, as we've been speaking with Jeremy here, we've been in the realm where people have known, practiced, been aware of, comfortable with tipping 
for a while, right, which is sit-down restaurants, food industry. One of the things that we heard at the top of the show were people expressing pushback, confusion about the new realms of tipping. Wait, wait, who am I expected to tip? Who am I not expected to tip? What is customary? What isn't? And it does feel, Sean, like some of the question here is not about as mounts even, but norms and customs. So talk about that a little bit. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, the thing is, uh, but just to clarify, so for tips, uh, if you are wondering where it's going, uh, it is uh, by law 100% going to the employees. Is that, that true is in every same. state, Sean Jung? Yeah, for tips, that is absolutely true. For service charge, uh, that kind of depends. So for service charge, uh, the employer has the right to basically distribute uh, that uh, whether that being not only in front of the house, but also back of the house. But that actually changes depending on the state level. So, for instance, for Massachusetts, the the, uh, the law is pretty strict. And it also mentions that for even for all service charges, it has to be only distributed over to the front of the house, uh, which means that there would not be included, uh, that would not be including uh, back of the house in that such case. But that actually differs a bit depending on state. Uh, but where it's going, basically, um, as mentioned for tips, 100% to the employees, but for service charge, that kind of depends on the state. So actually, let's stay with that. I appreciate you bringing that up, Sean. And since you did, let's stay with it for a minute. We'll go back to Jeremy. Jeremy, how did you uh, distribute your service charges? And as you've spoken with other restaurant owners, was that an important piece, being able to use any of the money for the restaurant itself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in our case, we took that 20% um, service charge and 25% um, of it, you know, the seven left 10 bucks, um, $2.50, that was retained by the house. And we used that to, you know, cover the, the tax on that service charge. And then the remaining amount was um, split between the front of house workers, the, you know, the servers, the bartenders, the hosts, bussers, uh, and the back of house, your cooks, your dishwashers, uh, and kind of a 70-30 split of that, you know, remaining money. So that's how we did it. Um, in Washington State, there's, I think, maybe a little bit more latitude as long as you're disclosing everything to the customer, both on the menu and on your, you know, credit slips and receipts. Um, but that, that's how uh, we approached it. And Jeremy, just briefly, when you went away from the service charge and back to tipping, did you find that your servers brought home more again or not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So uh, right right away, um, you know, that 25 percent of the you know 20 percent service charge, uh, we were no longer retaining that. So um, that was that was a raise uh, right away. And then on top of that, you know, I think um, we were we were running our service charge in such a way that there wasn't an additional tip line. So it was, you know, just the 20 percent. Um, what we find is that our customers tip closer to about 22 percent. We think what's happening is they're probably tipping on the total amount. Um, you know, the including tax, uh, whereas the service charge was not uh, working that way. It was only applied to the actual, you know, pre-tax amount. So um, it's it's definitely been a raise for, for everyone in the restaurants, the switch from service charge, how we were doing it to tipping. Okay, back to you, Sean Jung, and I'm glad you gave us a chance to close the loop on that. Now I do kind of want to widen it out because it does feel like in this moment where people are challenged by the new world of tipping that we have established we're actually in, part of that challenge is should we have to tip everybody that we're now getting asked to tip? Um, and that 
that comes around to a lot of things about, well, is the tip in order to help people make enough money? Or is it a response to service? So where you hear somebody say, well, wait, if I'm the one actually picking up the food at my favorite bakery where I like their cookies, then who is it I'm tipping? So let's talk about this this expansion of the tipping universe, Sean Jung, mm-hmm. and what you're seeing and understanding in that. I see. Well, um, well, first of all, if we kind of think of what, uh, by law, what the definition of tip is, uh, a tip is basically a money a customer leaves for an employee over the amount due to for the goods sold or service rendered. And for that reason, it's sort of a gray line where, where we can legally ask for tips. Uh, for restaurants, however, it's a very uh, special case where Basically, uh, the tip that they receive is a substantial portion of what they earn as comparing to other industries that we would compare for services. So, for instance, uh, for a restaurant in Massachusetts, they don't receive the minimum wage of $15, which has been recently implemented in January, but they are receiving $6.75 per hour. The rest is depending solely on their tip. Of course, if the restaurant cannot, uh, they don't receive enough tips that don't go up to $15, then in that case, the restaurant has to pay for that tip credit. But still for a restaurant employee, for especially for the uh, for a, wait, a waiter or a waitress, uh, basically the tip amount is substantially important for them. So in that case, still having the same norm of paying 15%, unfortunately, I'm mean, uh, 20%, these days, uh, is still a good practice uh, that is substantially very important to uh, their daily lives. Now, for other industries, that's a little bit different. And the reason why is because, of course, they they are not receiving less than the minimum wage. A tip is sort of a surplus of what they are doing. And for that reason, um, if, of course, uh, if they ask for a tip, that really still depends on the consumer of whether they really want to pay that tip or not. Okay, so I want to kind of summarize that, and we'll get a little bit more into this difference in the minimum wage a little bit later in the show. So I think what you're saying, Sean, is, you know, uh, especially in uh, the restaurant industry, where the tip has been is to make up for the fact that the earned wage is, in fact, lower, and legally you tip based on the quality of either the product or the service. And then when you are looking at uh, requests for tips in industries where the person isn't structured paid less because of the way the minimum wage works, then it's really up to the customer to make the decision. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, that is correct. All right. And and Jeremy Price, you being fully situated, you know, in the restaurant industry, does that sound like how you think your customers think about it? You know, I'm not sure. The situation in Washington State is a little different where our servers do make, uh, you know, restaurant workers in Washington State do make a, a minimum wage of 16.50, at least in the city, city of Seattle. Um, so, so they are getting that. So I don't know if our, if our customers are necessarily thinking about it in that way. I, I do think that they, you know, they're, they're probably doing what they're doing kind of, you know, just out of, out of custom. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of a social sort of like understanding about, you know, what a tip should be. And I think they're kind of carrying through with that. Well, you've actually given us a little bit of a sneak preview into what we can talk about when we come back, because actually Washington State is one of two states where there is zero distance between the 
there is no difference between the full minimum wage and uh, a minimum wage, for example, for restaurant workers. There's a lot to this wage question. There's a lot to policy and what comes next. Sean Jung of Boston University and Jeremy Price of restaurants like the Walrus and the Carpenter and donut shops and coffee shops called General Porpoise will stay with us. You've had a lot to say to us about this new world of tipping, so we'll continue to explore it. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. And today we're talking about changing expectations around tipping. We're joined by Sean Jung, who's assistant professor at Boston University's School of Hospitality Administration, and Jeremy Price, co-owner and president of Sea Creatures Restaurants, which operates 10 businesses in Seattle, including fine dining restaurants like the Walrus and the Carpenter, and a handful of coffee and donut shops called General Porpoise. As we've been talking about what tipped workers make before tips varies widely from state to state. We started to touch on this and this idea of different kinds of minimum wages. One part of a federal law about pay hasn't changed in more than 30 years. It is called the sub minimum wage. So we're going to go back to Sylvia Allegretto, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. So the subminimum wage was introduced in 1966. That was an amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that's the act that originally introduced the regular minimum wage. So in 1966, they decided to amend the act to cover more workers, because originally only about one in five workers or maybe less were covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. So they widened the umbrella, the protection of workers uh, to be to include service workers, such as restaurant workers. But at the same time, they decided that they would pay those workers who received tips only half of the regular minimum wage. Allegretto says that the thinking was that service workers would make up the difference in tips. With this new subminimum wage, businesses got what's called a tip credit. And the tip credit 
is basically an employer wage subsidy, meaning that they could count towards the wage bill, the tips that the workers receive. The, the employer's just assuming that every hour you work, you got $5.12 in tips, and then the employer just uses that as a credit. Credit meaning they now don't have to worry about paying you that wage. If a worker doesn't make enough money in tips to make minimum wage, the employer's supposed to make up the difference. Allegretto says that hasn't always happened. There's little enforcement. You know, when if you're working at a diner and a truck stop in the middle of the country, maybe you're not making enough money to make up the, the tip credit. So then it turns into kind of like this idea that, that it becomes wage theft. So the federal sub-minimum wage used to be linked to the federal minimum wage. So every time the minimum wage went up, the sub-minimum wage would go up, too. Remember, it used to have to be half the minimum wage. But Allegretto says that stopped in 1996 with another change to the Fair Labor Standards Act. The NRA, the other NRA, the National Restaurant Association, which is another very powerful lobby, got language put into the bill that basically froze the subminimum wage at $2.13 an hour into perpetuity. Enter the late Herman Cain, then president of the National Restaurant Association, who brokered the deal with then President Bill Clinton. So today, the federal minimum wage is $7.25, and more than 30 years later, the subminimum wage still $2.13. 16 states still use that as their subminimum wage, including Oklahoma, North Carolina, Texas, and Virginia, among others. Others have tweaked the amount, and Allegretto says seven states have no subminimum wage at all. She'd like to see that happen in more places. We can make these jobs better jobs. I mean, they, they have done it around the world, and they've done it around the world without subminimum wages. It can be done here, too. So we need higher regular minimum wages we need to phase out subminimum wages so we can take some of the idea of what makes a good job, the, the benefits that make a job a good job and make them universal for everybody. So that's Sylvia Allegretto, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Sean Jung, I think I just want to turn to you and give you a chance to react to the way Sylvia Allegretto laid out that history. Um, yes, that's uh, what you mentioned is um, absolutely accurate in terms of how the subminimum wage has moved across time, um, as well as um, what we currently are experiencing over all the states. Um, however, uh, in terms of the increasing the subminimum wage to, let's say, uh, matching the minimum wage, uh, I, that really depends on uh, how much the restaurant can actually bear that amount of cost. And for that reason, uh, right now, there has been a lot of debate in terms of whether we can actually do this. So uh, it's not as easy as, uh, of course, the it would be the right direction, but also it will take a lot of time as well as uh, careful thinking if we would want to actually increase that wage to minimum wage then uh, and then completely eradicating the system of having that sub-minimum wage at this point. So, Jeremy Price, I turn to you, and I'm mindful. I talked about two states, Washington and California, which have one structure. Sylvia Allegretto talked about the total of seven states where, the, in, in practice, there's zero gap, right, between the two. You're in Washington state. You do run some coffee and donut shops, and I want you to kind of think about those there. Should you be in a situation where right now— 
you were paying the sub-minimum wage, right, the just over $2, and you did have to close that gap. Would you be able to do it? Would you be able to find a way to do it as a business owner? Not not without, you know, raising prices um, significantly. Um, and I don't know that, um, you know, the market would really bear that. You know, our, our situation is that we, you know, we are paying a 1650 you know, city of Seattle minimum wage to, to our coffee workers. And, you know, that is you know, reflected just as it is on any other menu in the city and in the prices. Um. So I want to bring in, anytime we do that, I think it's great if we can also bring in the server voice, right? And we got a call from Iris, who's a server at a pizza place uh, and patio bar in Chicago. Here's a part of the message that Iris left us. My pre-tip wage is around 980, something like that. Um, and we don't have a service charge at my restaurant, so I rely completely on tips. Um, and generally, people are pretty good about being generous. But, you know, there's some people who really stiff you. So that need to rely on tips, Sean Jung, followed by the vulnerability of relying on tips. And then we've got this other dimension, which is bias. And I think bias is an important thing to bring into this as well. Sean, I'm going to play for you um, a little more sound from Mike Lin, who's the professor of consumer behavior at Cornell University School of Hotel Administration. Um, And in this case, Mm -hmm. talking about potential bias, for example, um, against black servers. He says there's some evidence that black servers get lower tips than white servers, but there's, a, it's, there's not enough data to be as clear as uh, he might like to be. The evidence strongly suggests that black service providers get lower tips. There's not nearly as much data, and it's not as good a data. To study this in a real-world context, you're going to restaurants and keeping records, well, most restaurants have only a handful of black servers. It's hard to be sure that any race difference you're observing is caused by race and not by the peculiar characteristics of the individuals who make up that race. Meaning, I'm assuming Sean Jung there, when he's talking about it, such a small sample size that you can't be sure that you're seeing statistically significant information there. And yet, one does have the question about vulnerable populations being even more vulnerable when relying on the discretion of tips um, to make up these gaps, Sean Jung. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's absolutely true. So um, uh, Professor Lin is absolutely uh, right in terms of that, as well as I have actually read uh, several of his paper related to uh, that subject. Uh, as you've mentioned, when we're saying it's not statistically significant, it means that we don't actually have much data to actually prove it in a statistical way yet. Uh, however, it is a true fact that we are opening that, uh, shall we say, it's not an opportunity, but I would say a chance for that to be uh, that to be actually happening in the real world. Uh, so um, if you ask whether a tip is uh, this tip, does have that sort of sort of racial profiling, though we don't find it in a yet in terms of a statistical way. It still opens a chance that absolutely there might be a, that sort of situation that we are seeing in today's world. So, Jeremy Price, I'll turn back to you. Uh, the coffee and donut shops you run, uh, the general purpose shops. Do any of them use the screens where the suggestion for tips? are right there. Do you, do you have that in any of your coffee and donut shops? We do. Yeah, they, they all have that as part of our point of sale system. Do you perceive 
that the presence of that and the social pressures we talked about earlier, right? Well, the person in front of me did it. And of course, there's three tiers, 15, 20, or 25, or maybe it's 25, 30, and 35 in some cases. Do you perceive that there could be a leveling effect from those screens that might help eliminate bias? Do you? And again, we're talking about anecdotal here. This is perception. But I'm curious to ask you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think p- potentially. I don't know that we've, if I have, like, kind of anecdotal stories, you know, one one way or the other on that. I think, you know, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, where I, I think people do a lot of times just had a sort of a set point in their minds about, you know, what what they want to tip. And unless something goes amazingly well or really awfully, you know, they're just going to kind of tip at that at that set point, you know. Um, so I don't know if the, the prompts on the screens really kind of move the needle for people. So your perception really is that for a customer, they come in and there is a percentage that sort of exists in a steel wrapped bubble. And unless something really wild happens in one direction or another, that number holds, period. Yeah, I think I think that's true, and and I say that only because the you know the tipping amount is just is just really so consistent in our experience. You know, there there is deviation, of course, but um, you know that bell curve. There are just so many people in the middle, kind of doing doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, I, so again, anecdotal, but uh, you know that's that's my experience. So I want to. This intrigues me. So now, okay, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do this because I'm intrigued by that. I want to introduce another caller. This is On Point listener Eileen Scully in New Haven, Connecticut, who says it would help her as a customer if employers were transparent uh, about how much their workers were making. I think this problem can be fairly easily rectified if employers or the software at the point of sale requires employers to declare what they are paying their workers per hour. If I see that somebody's making the tipped minimum, which is just over $2 an hour, I'm going to feel very differently about being asked to tip 20 to 25% than I am if I see that a barista is making $12 an hour. So I I didn't set that up as a gotcha to you, Jeremy Price, although I am going to come back to you on it in a minute. But I want to start with Sean Jung first and sort of historical practices of transparency or lack thereof and whether you think more wage transparency would make a difference. And if you know if there's any research to support that, Sean. Mm, So um, wage transparency. Well, um, to be quite honest, I'm not that knowledgeable in terms of that, but if we think of in uh, in an economical way, uh, or shall we say in previous practices, I don't think that there is many places that had to basically show their wages in order to uh, basically make a sale or even have tips re- uh, received. So it's a very unconventional practice which um, hasn't been very implemented in today's world. Um, I do find it interesting if that would be possible or would even um, would see uh, and would expect that people would then actually pay more tips if they were receiving less than the minimum wage. But again, um, it hasn't been quite seen in the real world practice, uh, to be quite honest. And Jeremy, what's your reaction to our caller there? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's an interesting kind of thought experiment. Um, you know, I think employees might be pretty uncomfortable with sort of disclosing, you know, what their earnings are to strangers. Um, but I, I think it's an interesting to consider, you know, would that would that move the point? I mean, I think, um, you know, hopefully consumers, um, you know, guests of restaurants and coffee shops kind of know what's going on in their area with the minimum wage and kind of can make some assumptions about, you know, whether employees are making a tip minimum wage or, you know, making a, you know, a, a firm minimum wage. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I've never heard of any any um, other operators doing anything like what the caller described. So it's, it's hard to really, you know, kind of say more about it. So Jeremy, let me ask you, in a dream world, across your restaurants, your coffee shops, your donut shops, understanding what it takes to reward your employees the way that you would like to and keep them. If we took tips off the table, What's the hourly wage that you both wish you could pay your employees and you believe if you did pay your employees, you would have a stable and rewarded employee environment? Roughly, what is it? Oh, man, I don't know if I have a, a firm firm number. I mean, you know, like a lot of cities in America, Seattle has a, you know, housing affordability crisis right now um, where, you know, we're in a situation where, you know, on top of everything else, it's hard to find workers because many workers are have been priced out of, you know, kind of living where near our restaurants. Um, so I think it's it's actually like a much larger number probably than, than you know, you would think. Um, you know, right now they're, they're probably with tips making, you know, between $20 and $30 an hour. And that's really, um, you know, probably sounds like a lot depending on you know where you're listening in the country but you know for here that still you know puts a, you know a studio apartment probably out of your reach um, so it's I don't have a number in mind I think you know we'd want an economist to kind of tell us what a living wage in Seattle is that you know would be you know comfortable for people but that's kind of what I would but be it's more targeting. than that it's more than yeah that. it is right. it is all right and Sean Jung I've got just a few seconds for you it makes me wonder at the end of the day is this about wages and wage policy really it absolutely is. Um, currently, we're we're in a very very high inflation uh, situation where consumption hasn't been decreasing as well, um, and it's a tough life to live right now. And for that reason, that's why people need more in terms of wages, and restaurants need to find a way to actually find that solution. And that is the that is the current situation that we have to all, shall we say, accept. I would say. And do you think, do you see any sign to believe that that's someplace we can get? Uh, get to? Federally. Oh, getting better. Uh, hopefully, yes. Um, hopefully, the inflation will start to decrease. Um, and hopefully, we might actually have a situation where um, tip doesn't have to, they have to be a nuisance to us uh, back again. All right. There you go. Sean Jung, assistant professor at Boston University's School of Hospitality Administration. Jeremy Price, co-owner and president of Sea Creatures Restaurant in Seattle. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who called in today, too. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is On Point. <laughs> <laughs>